We are finishing up our series uh, on David. We've been, ever since the first of the year, looking at how God moved in David's life to get him from a spot that perhaps wasn't that good to a spot that was much better in order to help us think about how we moved through what occurred the last year and a half to where hopefully we'll be in the near future. We've looked at all kinds of events in David's life, and what we have been doing is looking at the event and then turning over to the historical psalms. There are several psalms that's up, up in the very opening of the psalm tells us that this was written following this occasion. Now, some scholars would debate whether those are accurate or not. Uh, I just kind of assume that they are. We, we have no manuscript evidence of those being added at a later time, so I'll just leave that debate up to the scholars. But last week, we looked at our last story, which was the tragedy of David and his son Absalom. If you remember just real briefly, following David's sin with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet had said, you're going to experience very tragic things in your family. The sword will never leave. And 12 years later, David experienced that. Now, leading up to it, David's oldest son, Amnon, had sexually assaulted his half-sister, Tamar. Tamar was a full sister to Absalom. And Absalom was incredibly angry at what his half-brother had done. And David was angry, but David didn't do anything. You see, the law demanded that Amnon die because of his sin, but because David had been forgiven of the exact type of sin, his sin with Bathsheba, he didn't enforce the law with Amnon. So Absalom took it on himself, and he killed his half-brother. He then began a period of several years undermining his dad. And when David was about 62 years old, my age, basically uh, Absalom decided it's time to move. He went down to Hebron, the original capital under David, proclaimed himself king, and word got to Jerusalem, Absalom's trying to overthrow you. And then you get that tragic story that eventually led to Absalom getting caught in a tree. Some translations said he was caught with his head. Others, he was caught with his hair. Anyway, he ends up dying at the hands of his cousin, Joab. Now, what is interesting about this is that David, at some point in time, we don't know when, he writes what we call today Psalm 3, a psalm that reflects on his fleeing from his son, Absalom. I can't imagine sitting down to write that. I, I don't know if you've ever sat down and written something emotional. Uh, Twelve years ago, I was about to have triple bypass surgery. June goes to Walmart the, the couple of nights before my surgery, and before she left the house, she simply says to me casually, "Less." I don't want to be gloomy about this. I don't want to be negative. I know you're going to be fine, but just in case, I don't know who you want to preach your funeral. Now, boy, that's what you want to hear right before surgery. And so June 
leaves to go to Walmart, I sit down at my computer and I cry for the next hour as I typed up my funeral plans. They're still there on my desktop. I mean, you can go, and, and I entitled it, by the way, Just In Case. That was the title of it. David sits down and writes this song. I'm pretty sure he cried all the way through it. So the psalm begins very simply as a reflection on David. If you remember the story there in 2 Samuel, David gets word, he orders all of his troops, all of his family members, everybody that supported him, you've got to get out of Jerusalem. I don't know how many thousands left that day, but I suspect it was two, three, four thousand. Many of his closest bodyguards, his, his, basically his elite troops that protected him. And they began to head to the north. East, Absalom's coming from the southwest, and so they're heading the opposite direction, which led them over the Mount of Olives, which is just to the east of Jerusalem. And as he's going, he's barefooted, he's got his head covered, he's weeping, everybody's crying. I mean, if you could imagine David as he's thinking, Absalom, my son Absalom is doing this. I mean, I can't believe it's Absalom. And, and so there he heads out and, and, and he begins right off the bat in this psalm by reflecting on that reality. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Even my own son. Truth is, we all experience moments like this. I mean, we all have times where we hear of situations and we think, Really? I mean, here is the situation with David. He says, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately. He'll move quickly. He'll overtake us. He'll bring us to ruin and our whole city will be put to the sword. David loves his son, loves his son dearly. But he's honest about his son. He knows what his son can do. And we all find ourselves in a similar situation. Maybe at work maybe at the office, maybe in school, oftentimes in our own families like David did, where we feel like we're always having to defend ourselves against attacks. And of course, you don't get any personal than your own son trying to overthrow your throne. I don't know where you are right now, but I suspect if we all just pause for a moment, we can think, yeah... You know, uh, I'm I'm struggling with, you know, that brother, that sister, that parent, that in-law. I'm struggling with that work associate. I'm struggling with, dare we even say, that brother or sister in Christ. And so what do we do when we find ourselves in situations, and they may not be as bad as this one, I hope they're not. But what do we do in situations like that? Jesus found himself that way. Mark begins his gospel in chapter 1 with the incredible miracles of Jesus, but he gets to chapter 2, and immediately he says, guess what? People started attacking him. I mean, for forgiving sins. Who in the world can forgive sins? He's blaspheming. Only God can do that. You go a couple of verses later, it says, when the teachers of the law who are Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors. How dare he do that? And so when we see Jesus, we see Jesus dealing with conflict. Personal attacks of all kinds. It's a part of living in a fallen world. And so David goes on in verse 2. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Woo! David, as he's leaving, of course, 
a major percentage of Israel have now left him. Uh, Absalom's convinced them he's an old man. He doesn't know what he's talking about anymore. Then there's the family of Saul. Saul still has people who supported him, you know, 30 years earlier. And, and they're sitting there thinking, you're getting your due now. And the text actually tells us about a man by the name of Shimei. And Shimei is, is there literally as Saul, uh, excuse me, as David is leaving Jerusalem, he crosses over the Mount of Olives, he heads toward the Jordan River, and Shemai hears what's going on. And he comes out, and I want you to notice verse 6. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Here he is, evidently up above them, and he's picking up rocks, throwing them at the king of Israel. And not just him, but all the officials, all the members of his army. And by the way, notice what he says to him. Get out of here. Get out, you murderer. You scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you've reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You've come to ruin because you're a murderer. And he was. He had murdered Uriah. One of David's nephews, three of his nephews were leaders in the army. And one of his nephews comes over to David and he says, do you want me to go up there and cut that dog's head off? You know, you got to appreciate his passion. You know, I just go up there and I'll just, one swing, his head is gone. And David says, what does this have to do with you? If he's cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David's confused right now. And I don't know if you've ever felt God's absence, but boy, he is struggling with it right now. And he's basically saying, what in the world is God doing? Has he sent, has he sent, you know, Shemai to do this? And you've been there, I've been there. I've been there multiple times where I just throw up my hands going, God, I have no clue why you're doing this. First time I was 17 years old. My older brother, who had just gotten married and just started working as a youth minister, died in an airplane crash. And I asked God for months and years after that, God, why? And what's interesting about that is if you keep asking the question long enough and searching the scriptures long enough, you find that God basically says, I'm not going to tell you, but you need to know some things. I love this passage out of Isaiah 57. I don't know if you've ever seen this one. If you haven't, you need to mark it in your Bible because it's brought comfort to me many times. Notice what Isaiah says. The righteous perish and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Wait, wait a minute, what? God, are you saying that sometimes you allow people to die? to prevent them from experiencing evil in this world? Yeah. Now, if I'd been Isaiah, I would like to know why I was still here, right? I mean, if the righteous are being taken, God, why did you leave me? And the answer to that question is, that's part of my plan. And I don't have to explain it to you. And I've learned to live with the mystery. 
Now, when I get to eternity, am I going to ask God why? Yeah. And I'm sure he'll answer my questions, just like he will yours. But learning to live with the reality that God sometimes is up to something that doesn't quite compute with us is something that David had to learn. And so he very quickly says, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts up my head high. I love that language there. You're my shield, God. If you know anything about the Psalms, and I appreciate John Micah so much, John Micah has really been challenging the elders and the ministers to get back into the Psalms, to experience the Psalms. And last Wednesday night, we were going through Psalm 62. And we were literally reading it, praying it, you know, letting it come in. And, and Psalm 62 and verse 2 says this, Truly he is my rock. He's my salvation. He's my fortress. That caught my attention. I, I began to read in the Psalms, just kind of go through different Psalms, where David called God his rock. And I thought of all the things to call God. I, I don't think I would have called him my rock. Unless, when I was a teenager... I'd gone to a valley called Elah and went down to a stream. This is the valley of Elah. This is a stream that runs in the wet season. I walked in that very stream three years ago. And there he picked up five rocks and with it took down Goliath. Well, it was one of them. You see, if a rock had been the way God had saved your life, you probably would call God a rock as well. And then notice... He's the one who lifts my head high. You go back to the text, and David is literally going up the hill. Uh, he, he's, he's not wearing any shoes. He's barefooted. And, and I don't know where Tony is, but Tony came up front this morning, and, and someone says, Tony, do you have any socks on? And Tony pulled up. He doesn't have any socks on. And, and of course, you know what that means. It means he's from Mississippi. And so anyway, David is barefooted. He's got his head covered. He's crying. And it's God who lifts his head up. In verse 4, he gets to the top of the Mount of Olives and he says, I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I, I love what takes place next. Basically, and by the way, this is the valley here of Kidron. Kidron Valley runs right between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. This is the Mount of Olives up here. This is from 100 years ago. Okay? This is an old, old picture. Today, that whole mountain is, is full of graves. And you go, graves? Yeah, that's one of the things that surprised me most. You go to Jerusalem today, and you have the Kidron Valley on either side, one going up to the walls of Jerusalem, one going up to the top of the Mount of Olives, and there's just cemetery after cemetery after cemetery. And you go, why? Because people think that's where Jesus is going to come back. And, and since Jesus is going to return to the Mount of Olives, if they're raised, they're going to be raised right there to see him. And so that's why you've got a lot of people buried here. But you can imagine this. This is a pretty good mountain. It's going to take a while for several thousand people to get there. And what you find in the text is that as they're coming out of Jerusalem, heading up this mountain, the priests come out, the Levites come out, and they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And they set the covenant down, the Ark of the Covenant down. It's covered, as you can imagine. And they're offering sacrifice as all the people are pouring out of the city, crying and weeping and heading, trying to get away. And David's watching this. And once again, David says, 
take the ark of God back into the city. If God gives me favor, I'll come back to it. But look at verse 26. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. I mean, he's struggling right now. God, what are you doing? Have I done something to offend you? And of course, it all goes back to his sin with Bathsheba. And so he gets to the top of the mountain. This is the top of the Mount of Olives. If you look down the hill, by the way, all these things here are are, are grapes. They're, They're cemeteries. But notice on the top of the Mount of Olives, you see the Dome of the Rock. That's where the temple used to be. It's now a Muslim mosque. And so when you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, you can see the Temple Mount. Now the temple hasn't been built yet, but the tabernacle is there. And I can just see David as he's up on the top of the mountain and he looks and he sees the tabernacle and perhaps even the ark being carried back into the tabernacle. And he says, God, I hope you bring me back. That's what Jerusalem would have looked like back then, far smaller than it is today. Enough for maybe six, eight, ten thousand people. And the very top up there, the very top of this up here is where you would have had if I can get my light here. That's where the ark would have been, where the tabernacle would have been. And so David gets up there, and, and when he gets up there, he's crying, and they bring word to him. They said, listen, Ahithophel has joined Absalom. Ahithophel is his primary advisor. Everybody trusted Ahithophel. He's like the voice of God. And he's joined Absalom. And so David prays. Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And the rest of the psalm tells us that at that point, there was a peace that came over David. A peace that transcends all understanding, Philippians 4, 7. You've been there. I've been there. Moments of where I've asked God, God, would you intervene? And God intervenes, and I don't know why he's intervened. I don't know how he's intervened. I can't figure it out up here, but I feel it right here. And watch what David says. He says, I lie down and sleep. Now, you don't understand what's going on until you know the rest of the story. Paul Harvey. Basically, what's going on here, and, and, and of course... All of us have experienced moments like this where something's troubling us and we can't sleep. I experience that. I mean, have something that happens, I'm thinking about it, I I try to go to sleep. You ever had that kind of sleep of where you're sleeping but you're not sleeping? You're just replaying the events in your mind over and over again and you wake up the next morning and you're totally exhausted? That's what David is saying didn't happen to him. You see, Ahithophel had come into Jerusalem. He had told Absalom what to do. And basically, here's what he says. You choose 12,000 men. You chase out after David right now. They're exhausted. They're tired. You'll overtake him. You'll kill him. And that'll be the end of the story. And God sent a different advisor to convince Absalom not to do it which prompted David to say, I lie down and sleep, and I wake again because the Lord sustained me. And guess what? I'm not going to fear tens of thousands. You can send 12,000 troops all you want. I've got the reassurance of God that he's going to protect me. 
This incredible trust, this peace had come upon him. And so he writes, Arise, Lord, deliver my God, my God deliver me. Strike all of my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. He uses phrases that he was familiar with. We have phrases like that. I don't know if y'all remember as a teenager, especially those of us guys, I hope you girls didn't do this, but you know, we'd get into a scuffle with somebody and somebody said, man, just knock his block off. I mean, turn his lights out. Well, for, for David, it was, you know, strike him in the jaw and, and break his teeth. You ever broke a tooth? You want to disable somebody? Break their teeth. Man, that is absolutely some of the most excruciating pain you'll ever experience. He's basically saying, God... Putting it in your hands. And that's hard. It's always hard to put it in God's hands. You go on reading the text, the war breaks out between Absalom and David's men. And I want you to notice what's underlined down here. And the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. What's the text telling us? That God intervened, He answered David's prayer. I mean, he took more out with the forest than Joab did with his own men. And so he ends with a beautiful blessing. He says, from the Lord comes deliverance, and may your blessing be on your people. I don't know what you're going through right now. But Psalm 3 may have a message for you. And if you're struggling with issues and you're like, God, I don't know what to do, I don't know what you're doing, then pray to him, put your trust in him, let his peace fill your heart, and let him take care of it. Jesus said right before he left, and surely I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. If you need to give something to God today, and we can help you give it to God, if you need to repent and be baptized, and you need our assistance in doing that, we would be honored to do it. Let us know. You can come forward and do that right now as we stand and sing.